So, Bob, big surprise. I have a bunch of emails from patrons that we can read and answer. What do you say? I say it's really cool that people actually want to write us and ask questions. Yeah. This first email is from patron Alexis, who you pulled up on stage during the live show a couple years ago oh. and did your oh. your thing. Oh, Alexis, I'm so sorry. Why are you so sorry? Because I backed her up against a wall. And she's. I'm pretty tall, and she's not that tall, and... I just felt like I was hulking over her. It's embarrassing. I've already apologized to her about it. <laughs> still, I still, I still cringe though. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the listeners who weren't there a couple years ago at the live show might need some explanation. Oh, sure. So, uh, I asked you to do a segment during the live show, yep. and you thought, well, I'll do a DBT thing, yeah, and something that you do in your class. Yep. And you came up on stage, and you asked for volunteer, and right. Alexis volunteered, yep. and. Uh, it there was a rope involved. Tell, tell us what happened. Well, well, the the thing that's interesting. If you ever put your hand up to somebody else's hand, right, and you say, touch, you know, you touch your palms, you know, whatever, and you push, they'll push back. In fact, they'll push back and they'll they'll meet you with the exact force that you're, and they'll you'll get into homeostasis. You'll get into a, yeah, you know. And if you push harder, they actually push harder. And the point is, is um, about it's kind of like. Um, you have a natural tendency to meet force with force. And and it isn't just physical. It's also like interpersonal, emotional, whatever. Um, so the exercise was one in demonstrating that. But Alexis is the only person I've ever done this with who, when I pushed, just allowed herself to be pushed backwards. <laughs> and so I ended up pushing her across a pretty big room. Up against the wall. And you were hoping she would push back. I, I was thinking she would because I've done this many, 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 many times. And, and after she pushes back, then you were going to do what? Well, the idea is to demonstrate that um, we meet force with force, that we don't blend with it. This is basically a keto. Yeah. Um, You're trying to teach, hey, emotionally and relationally, yes. you don't necessarily want to meet force with force. You, don't. you want to you know, let it go past you. And, yeah. Um, and the rope was involved and in... I don't think we used the rope, but I did bring one. Oh. It was to do the opposite is to like get in a tug of war because generally if you tug, people will tug back and you'll meet. Yeah. You'll, yeah. you'll balance. Yeah. Um But I don't think we used it. Yeah, so so you pushed Alexis from uh, the middle of the of the stage, so to speak, yeah. all the way to the, to wall, the wall. And then what happened? Then you just sort of like I winged it. I don't even remember what I did. Yeah. I, and I remember being in the audience thinking like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because uh, a a response from you that might have helped you would have been, you, you could have said like, okay, so that really did not work. Normally people push back right. uh, and then I say this thing, but Alexis just uh, allowed me to push her Yeah, and I... Uh, now I don't know what to do, and I'm making a fool out of myself. Like that would have made more sense, but but you tried to you tried to fold it in. I, I yeah. You tried to make it. I winged it. Yeah, you tried to make it uh, a some kind some of something uh, something helpful or something. And I just remember thinking, like, what is happening? Yeah, yeah. And Alexis, you know, she was so nice. She's but very gracious. Does it say something about Alexis that she's the only one that hasn't pushed back? Maybe she's evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's a better person. Probably. Um, the other thing is the context. You've never done it at a live show. It's always in the context of a class, class. or something. Yeah. And might there be a preamble that you tell people of like, 
hey, uh, pu- you know, I'm going to push on you. I mean, is there, maybe there was some prompt that you didn't do on the live show. See, I asked her to put up her hands, and I asked if it was okay if I touched her palms. And, and then I said, I'm going to push. And um, then I did. Yeah. And then... Is, do, do, you, do you do a different prompt when you're in the DBT classes? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, maybe I, maybe I skipped something that's been a while. Yeah. But I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, she uh, still listens to the podcast and still has questions for you, Bob. Oh. Can you talk about rejection sensitivity dysphoria as it relates to specific disorders? I've seen it pop up in relation to ADHD, autism, complex PTSD, and borderline. Bob, do you know what rejection sensitivity dysphoria is? I do not. Yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. It's something that a lot of people talk about and will email in about. So rejection sensitivity dysphoria was developed in the 90s, I think. It's been around for a long time in the research literature. Essentially, it's defined as excessive pain and sensitivity triggered by the perception of being rejected. Oh, People with people with more rejection sensitivity are more likely to perceive and even expect rejection when it's not there. Right. And this often results in them uh, being depressed and or angry, yeah. you know, internalization or externalization of the pain. Uh, those with hi- higher rejection sensitivity tend to have bigger emotional displays. And this often results in actual rejection because you're overreactive to other people um it's not in the dsm but it is a it is a fairly robust research topic and it could be considered a symptom of borderline which we could imagine right i mean it's that's the core schema with borderline i mean so how would you connect this concept of rejection sensitivity to borderline oh i don't know um um you know i don't really i'm not good at this what are you not good at? Thinking diagnostically. I'm just not that. Just Well, when it comes to people who we would characterize as suffering from borderline, uh, are they sensitive to rejection? Yeah. How so? Um, they're apt to perceive it, maybe even when it's not, um, to misread cues uh, and, um, um, you know, like uh, look at the world through the lens of rejection. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting when, whenever you have like something like that, it's like put it on a pair of sunglasses, you know, like when you put on blue sunglasses, everything looks blue. And after a while, you don't even notice the blue anymore or yellow or red or whatever. Right. So I could imagine that this is having a pair of sunglasses that look at the world through the lens of rejection. And after a while, you don't even notice that you're wearing glasses, Mm -hmm. but you perceive the same things that someone else might perceive, but you would see them as rejection. I mean, I imagine I'm just defining that term using a metaphor. Yeah, right. So it fits well with borderline because the central feature of borderline is rejection sensitivity Yeah, because of rejection traumas, Yeah, uh, specifically betrayal traumas and betrayal slash rejection sensitivity and expecting it to happen and seeing it when it's not there or Mm. exaggerating tiny rejections like criticism Mm. into a full-blown billion percent rejection of you as as a human being and then of course you get really hurt and then you either depress become depressed and or angry and hostile with others which causes more rejection and Mm -hmm. that's more um, reason to have a schema of rejection and betrayal so borderline it fits very well with and and uh, you could consider 
rejection sensitivity to be a central feature of borderline. Yeah. Histrionic is very similar to borderline, so it's associated with that. Narcissism personality is also uh, very sensitive to rejection because they need to uphold, for different reasons, uh, but they need to uphold the fantasy that they're superior, and when you reject them, it challenges the fantasy that they need to cope and to survive, and they become very sensitive to that and Mm. will become angry often. ADHD is interesting, though. Do you know why it's connected to ADHD? I could imagine that if you're a kid with ADHD, you're misperceived all the time as, you know, being um, obstinate or um, uh, willful, and that that could engender um, rejection from others, and therefore you kind of get this view of self as, you know, bad or wrong or whatever, and um, I've noticed that with ADD adults, oftentimes they have um, um, shame a shame, shameful sense of themselves. Yeah, deep. Yeah. And the it, it's almost universal. The I don't know if they fit necessarily always the construct of rejection sensitivity, but yeah. it's very common for kids, particularly kids who, which is common, aren't diagnosed and, and aren't supported, right. that everyone just treated the kid like, they're yeah willful they're doing it on purpose they're not paying attention on purpose they they're a bad person they're stupid there's something wrong with them and they're just trying you know as every kid is trying to do they're they're trying to please but they're also you know trying to have fun Mm -hmm. and this internalized voice even if they are diagnosed properly maybe at the age of 10 or 25 they still retain that schema of of I am rejectable and uh, the trauma of being rejected can be triggered when you experience rejection and you're much more sensitive and much more expectant of it. So ADHD is, uh, uh, you know, commonly resultant of rejection sensitivity, complex PTSD, the same thing. You're being uh, traumatized by someone close to you and trauma when you're being abused there's an inherent, there's an implied rejection in there. Uh, when when someone hits you or even sexually abused you, there's, even in the midst of uh, grooming behavior, there's a notion that the victim feels of, I am being, re- I, me, I'm being rejected by this person because they want me to be something else for them. You know, I, I need to be, I need to be a victim or I need to change who I am in order to be acceptable to this person. Mm -hmm. And thus me, the core me is being rejected. And so that can result in rejection sensitivity. Avoidant personality disorder is pretty, um, uh, you know, they, their core schema is one of there's something deeply wrong with me. And thus uh, I and we're sensitive to rejection. Social anxiety is similar to avoid it. And eating disorders. Uh, what leads to eating disorders often is trauma, which can also result in rejection sensitivity. Mm. So, yeah, it's basically, um, uh, like I said, a schema. And in the research, they also will fo- focus on, in addition to the things we just mentioned, how minorities or oppressed groups of people sure. will be more likely to develop a rejection sensitivity. Because 
they're being rejected by society. Yeah. For example, for LGBTQ folks, there's this study by uh, Pachankis, Gottfried, and Ramratan, 2008. Uh, they developed a measure for gay-related, as they say, gay-related rejection sensitivity called the Gay-Related Rejection Sensitivity Scale. Mm. So you give this measure to gay folks who, uh, and it has a bunch of questions, and it tries to gauge how uh, how much sensitivity they have to rejection, and because uh, there's a spectrum. And they found that those with higher sensitivity, rejection sensitivity among gay people were uh, more likely to have parental rejection because of their them being gay oh. and more likely to have internalized stigma. Yeah. So when you take a group of people, uh, well, you take a person from a group of people and you say, because you're gay, you know, you're 15 years old or something, uh, you are a piece of crap because people who are gay are are worthless or wrong or sinful or disgusting and you have more of those messages then you're more likely to develop a general sensitivity to rejection if you as parents reject your child because of their sexual orientation then you're more likely to develop sensitivity to rejection in general so you could be 35 45 years old and grew up in a community where there's a lot of stigma, which would be common and kind of the norm, particularly back in the day, and rejected by your parents, which also was very common. And you're 45 years old and you're at work and someone barely indicates that they're rejecting of you. And not only are you expecting it to happen, but you might be extremely sensitive to it and become distorted and or... Uh, hostile or depressed or, you know, something like that. And uh, I've heard this. I didn't, they didn't use rejection sensitivity, but I have colleagues who are gay and, and uh, they told me about this years, years ago that it's a product of societal trauma. And it's one of the tragedies of human life that you can be, abused by parents or abused by society <clears throat> and it sticks with you and sabotages you. It's like this double trauma. Not only did you go through the trauma as a teenager or as a 20 something of being ostracized by society, but it lingers with you and destroys your relationships because you're seeing rejection everywhere where it's not, or you're overreacting to rejection when it's not, or you're internalizing rejection when you don't need to. So it's it's um, it's just another uh, example of how the universe just is not fair. <laughs> you know, we have this notion of like what comes around goes around. That's just not true. Mm -mm. It's just so unfair. Um, you know, similar for you uh, being uh, growing up, being mm -hmm. abused and being made to feel afraid of your attachment figure. You're still you, you survived it. You got through it. You were a good person. You were nicer to your parents, to your dad, than you than he probably deserved uh, when you were a kid, and hmm. and it's and it's still with you. And it's hard for you to even accept love or even feel comfortable in the in the warmth of love, which is just a complete tragedy, you know. And then me, uh, I get treated well, relatively. 
and I'm walking around uh, without a care in the world. <laughs> I mean, I have cares, but <laughs> but but uh, you know, when someone loves me, I I, I you know at least ninety five percent of me just just accepts it without any complication, and it's just it's just unfair. Hmm. Oh, I can't even remember what the question was. <laughs> uh, Patreon Alexis asked about uh, rejection sensitivity as it relates to specific disorders. Oh. Um, so the answer is, uh, yeah, yep. it, it it is related to a lot. of. Sometimes it's the core, like with borderline trauma, right. rejection, sensitivity, and sometimes it's a byproduct of how society reacts to you, as in with ADHD. Yeah. I wonder if, if imposter syndrome is a form of it. Um, I imagine imposter syndrome might be more prevalent for those who have rejection sensitivity. Yeah. It yeah. just makes sense, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Patron Josie wrote in and said, I'm a 38-year-old woman living in Scandinavia. I've experienced a lot of trauma during my life. As a result, as Bob put it, I became a functional robot. Uh, do you remember talking about that? No. Oh. I think what she's referring to is being helpful mm-hmm. to others yeah, yeah, and not really of yourself. Yeah. Okay. Um, so because of the trauma during her life, right. uh, she became a functional robot. Earning love if I produce help or care for others. Yeah. Uh, not love, not love for being me. I have, I am of no worth. I have a good life. But my sister died suddenly recently, mm. and I'm getting a divorce from my husband of 17 years, mm. and now I don't really see the point of my life. Why am I here? I have my therapist, but I am a client, and he is at work. It's not a real relationship. So oh, says, let's bookmark that one. Bob, how do you find your purpose outside of being a functional robot? Okay, so this whole thing about your therapist is working. I I really want to encourage you to talk to your therapist about that because it might be that the way you perceive them is not how they feel about themselves or see themselves in their relationship to you. Most therapists become therapists not not because they want a job, but because they're interested in being of some service to others. And so I'm guessing here, it's really a guess because I don't know your therapist, but I'm guessing that your therapist has um, um, interest in helping you. And perhaps has interest in helping you in particular because if you're in a relationship with somebody over a period of time, you become interested in them personally, just interested in them. Mm-hmm. So so I hope you'll, you'll... And most people don't get into this profession of to be a therapist to mail it in. Yeah. Yeah, they, they probably don't. But they, so your therapist probably isn't mailing it in, but we don't know because we don't know who that is. But, but I really, I encourage you to, I know it's hard to, but I encourage you to talk to your therapist about the what your your experience of your relationship and um, your view of your therapist to give it a shot. And feel free, if you have the need, Josie, to have your therapist really care, don't be afraid to express that. Say, I, I feel like you're just mailing it in, but I don't know. And by the way, I really need someone in my corner right now as a human being, not necessarily... Someone at work. Yeah. Right. Someone who's at work working with me. Right. They're doing their job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's that. But there's then that. they're asking, how do you find your purpose? Because she's saying she can relate to 
the mm. feeling of my purpose is to please others. Right. And so she is saying, yeah, I'm getting a divorce. divorce. My sister died and right. I don't really have people to please any, anymore. Right. And I don't know what my purpose is. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I think you're having an existential crisis or of some kind because, because of these things, if you're, if you're leaving your relationship, if you're ending your relationship with your spouse, then right. That's, that's a person who you're not, you know, there could be lemonade out of this lemon, you know, like, yeah, exactly. What is your purpose? What is the meaning? Uh, what is, what's valuable to you? I don't know how to answer this for you. I struggle with it sometimes. Like what's my purpose? Um, but I think I find my purpose in my work and in my relationship with Colleen. And you're telling us that, um, you know, two significant relationships are ending or ended. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know. I mean, hang in there. I think is the chief thing. The first thing, um, and continue to be open to what is, what is my purpose here? What is it that I want to do with my time? Uh, how do you find you, how do you relate? Plus 38. That's like midlife. Yeah. How do you relate to this notion? I mean, uh, are you, do you would you characterize it the way that that Josie is characterizing it? Yeah, I think I probably would. It's just the difference between me and Josie is my marriage isn't ending. So if it was, God forbid, well, then what would you? Be? I think I'd have an existential crisis too. It's like, well, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, yeah. So this sounds maybe controversial. Sure. Uh, on the internet anyway, maybe among many therapists, but one solution is to cultivate another relationship where you can yes. have that closeness and have that purpose. Yes. Cause you often talk about how your purpose in life is to make Colleen happier. Yes. And a lot of people would say, particularly if someone's going through a divorce and they have no purpose anymore, they would say, well, you need to have more independent purposes. I don't buy that one. I mean, I get it. I know people say it. And it's not 100% incorrect, I don't think. But since we're relational creatures, I just don't see us being, yeah. you know, independently, whatever. Yeah, that's so and it's interesting, right? Because, and I've, I think I've had inklings of this when you've talked about this before. And I completely agree with you, by the way. Because yeah. why not? Let's say you and Colleen, are, you know, are relatively well doing well in yeah. your relationship for the rest of your life mm -hmm. then what's the harm in having a completely uh so-called dependent purpose in your life yeah uh, that depends on someone else that is outwardly focused mm -hmm. you know other kinds of purposes that people would have that are more respected by society is i'm going to address climate change right. or something but you know you could say well that depends on other people, you know, it's not completely internal. No. Other people might say, I want to find complete enlightenment or yeah. something. And no one would say that there's something wrong with that. No. But you and I might. We'd, we might say, well, why are you so focused on you getting mm -hmm. enlightened? What, you know, because we're not, we're not, we're not not uh, uh, relational creatures. And so why are you running away from relationships, you yeah. know, to an individualized but it's interesting to think about going on the internet and saying the purpose of my life is to please my wife and I have no other purpose. And I dare you to tell me that I'm wrong 
or that there's something inferior about the purpose of my life. Right. And I bet you a hundred percent of people would say, yeah, there's something wrong with that. Yeah. That that's not okay. Right. That's dependent. That's yeah. uh, sad yeah, or something. Maybe. And, yeah. um, but the way you talk about it, I I'm on board. And uh, I think it's a noble cause, you know, because Colleen's purpose in her life, I assume, is to make your life better, partially. What I do you know. We'd have to ask her. What are you feeling right now? Sad. About what? Well, I know Colleen. I know where she'd been. And when I think about where she's been, I get really sad. You know, um, things at my house are okay, materially speaking. And uh, yesterday, she's had this gift card to Sundance. This is a, uh, they sell things like clothing and jewelry mm. and stuff. I gave her this gift card a couple years ago and it's hard for her to spend these things. But then Sundance set up an actual brick and mortar store down at the U Village. And she went down there yesterday and she was, she's like, I'm not going to be that long, but she was gone a long time. And she called me up in the middle of it and she's like, they make clothes here for middle-aged women. And I, I like, great, good to, you know, shop. That's great. You know? So she comes home and, um, this is after in the morning she's, she walks out of the bedroom in this pair of shoes that she's ambivalent about because they cost 120 bucks, which I know is a lot of money on the one hand, but it's not a lot of money on the other. And, and the way things are going at my house, that's okay. Right. So she comes home and she, she says, yeah, I got a couple things, but I, I didn't buy the $300 top. And I said to her the same thing I said to her this morning when I left. And also what I say to her all the time, which is just go buy the damn thing. Cause I mean, I know that a shirt isn't going to make her happy, but I think, I think my vision, my wish, I don't know if it's a vision that sounds a little hoity toity. My wish though, is that she can reach a place in life where she feels good enough about herself that she can just do such a thing or not do it, whatever. Um, but not because she's questioning whether or not she deserves. It's a theme you notice in her that she will deprive herself because she feels she doesn't deserve it. Yes. And, and when you hear her doing that, you're like, Oh, she's doing it again. She's doing it again. She wants it. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a splurge, but she always denies herself. Always denies herself. Yeah. Yeah. And you heard the, and it's such a sad thing in our society. You know, you think about a woman in middle age, which is probably most women. If you think about like what middle sure. age is defined sure. by right. most, most, uh, there's a huge percentage of people who are quote unquote middle, middle aged, aged women. Mm hmm. And that she could go to a store and say, oh, my God, they make clothes for people like me. Mm -hmm. And to feel like, um, I don't know, like. Self-conscious. Yeah, like, is this okay? Or yeah. am I supposed to always be dressed like I'm at Forever 21? Right. Which is a whole other Anyway, is that the name of a store forever 21? Yeah. Oh, or H&M or something, you know? Oh, anyway, the, uh, yeah. And I often uh, think about that, uh, for, for all genders, uh, mm -hmm. looking into stores, all the clothes are essentially made for extremely thin people. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, you know, I'm not an extremely thin person. So when I 
try on i try on like it's just funny like if i go to the mall and try and 99 of the clothes that are my size will look weird because it's because <laughs> it's not made for me uh-huh. and that's just there's something wrong with it's that. weird yeah we don't make clothes for the average body but you would think that marketers would say well i could probably make more money if I actually sold stuff that people would buy. Well, they're starting to, right? Cause but, now, that, but it's still the minority, and you need yes. some Sundance store that, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a weird, disjointed situation. It is weird. Anyway. But yeah, so you care, and you want to offset the unfairness that she has experienced. Oh, yeah. I think about her when she was little. I didn't know her then, of course. Sometimes I wish I had a time machine. Because there were a couple key times along the way where she really needed somebody in her corner. Yeah. Um, And uh, the person that wrote in from Scandinavia, they don't have a purpose anymore. Maybe their purpose was related to their spouse or their sister. And so those are really big losses. And it it seems to me there's probably no getting out of the crisis, not in any kind of short-term way. So as much as I would like to offer something that would alleviate your suffering, I don't know that there is anything to offer except please hang in there and keep looking. And probably you'll find something. And it may be something that you wouldn't have otherwise expected. Um, so let us know, won't you? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's take a break. We get back. More emails. More emails. Hey, deserving listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. Let's do an OPP, an old patron praise. These these individuals became patrons back in June of 2018 and have remained so as patrons this entire time. We got Greg from Ontario, I believe. We got Holy from Vallejo, California. We got Jan from Helsinki, Finland. Finland. I don't know if uh, it might be the only first person from Finland. We got Felix from God knows where. We have Joe. We have Tiffany from Gig Harbor. Hey, Gig Harbor. Near Seattle. We got Joanna from Ridgecrest, California. We got Mercy Pormoi from Stockholm, Sweden. Wow. We got Josh from Oklahoma City. We got Anina from London, uh, Great Britain. We got Jeff from Redmond, Washington. Hey, Redmond. 
Yeah, we got Jessica from God Knows Where. We have Christine from God Knows Where. We have Salome or Salome from God Knows Where. We have Rachel from God Knows Where. Rachel Ray is the name. Isn't that a famous person? That's the cook lady, right? Yeah, she prob- makes pet food now. But probably not that person, oh. right? Oh. But who knows? Maybe. Maybe Rachel Ray listens. We got Carrie from Goose Creek, South Carolina. Oh, I like that. Goose Creek. I know. It sounds nice. We got Patty from Renton, Washington. Where, oh, Renton. Where I was born. You were born in Renton? Mm-hmm. Valley mm-hmm. General. Lived in Kent. But really? was born in, yeah. I didn't know you lived in Kent. I, I worked, that's where I worked when I moved here. Yeah. First two years of my life. Wow. Like, my dad worked at Boeing, and so. Oh, right. Uh, you know, you, you lived down there. Yeah. And, but then when I was two, we moved to Sammamish. Sammamish, yeah. Yeah. Kristen from Pittsburgh, PA. Hey, Kristen, Pittsburgh. What's, what's Pittsburgh like? Oh, Pittsburgh's a great city. It was, you know, it's steel town. It's yeah. steel produced. But they hasn't it reinvented itself? Yeah, yeah. It's like reinvented, a, kind of like I a tech city. Tech, tech place, and it's a really nice city. It has I a like river. Three rivers. Yeah. Three rivers. Yeah. Yeah, Three River Stadium where the Steelers played. I think that's gone now, and they have a new one. Heinz Field, I think it's called. Steelers. Look. We got Dr. Andrea from Kinloff, I.E. What's I.E.? Is that Ireland? Am I, is that Ireland? I.E. I-E country oh. code. I.E. is Ireland. Ireland. Wow. But why I.E.? I, I think I do this every single time. I think I'm like, why is it I.E.? Anyway, we got Junius from Maryland. We got Cat. Triona from New South Wales, Australia. We have Madeline or Madeline from Trier, Deutschland or or Germany. So thank you all Neat. for becoming a patron back in June of 18 and staying with us this whole time. Should we get a big world map and put pins in it? <laughs> or, uh, or, or dots? Yeah, that'd be fun. Okay. Uh, we have patron Bree from Memphis who says, Hey, Dr. Kirk, what tips do you have for people who are starting graduate school in the fall? I'm returning to school this fall after four-year hiatus. Mm. I'm getting a double master's in Shakespearean literature and performance. Wow. Do you have any tips on managing money, stress, and homework? I would love to hear your thoughts on returning to in-person classes. I also really appreciate how you have normalized student loans and being generally broke in graduate school, which I'm bracing myself for. Any insight would be much appreciated. Bob, what would you give as advice? Enjoy your time. I loved graduate school. Mm. It was really stimulating and interesting, and I learned a lot and felt like, you know, when I when I started, I didn't think, eh, just finish this master's degree. It was sort of a stepping stone, right? right. But I learned a lot in graduate school and really liked my experience and time there. That's a highlight in my life. So Shakespearean literature, is that what they said? Yeah. performance? Wow. I mean, hold, oh, that's something to sink your teeth into. I mean, there's got to be a lot of potential for fun and I should enjoyment think. in there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's my central advice to is enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. It can. I, I find all students are either oriented toward I'm going to stress out about this and I'm going to uh, try to do a good job and I'm going to try to please my professors mm-hmm. and I'm going to make sure that I'm not I'm not caught as an imposter. You know, it's a mm-hmm. it's sort of a fear based approach to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Or a stepping stone approach. And then you have students who kind of bask in the space of, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to make this mine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make this assignment mine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to uh, 
uh, be myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a human being with my students and, and or with my classmates and my professors. Yeah. I'm going to go a little bit extra to make sure that I'm really learning. You know, I'm not going to just sit back and, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a concept that's not going to be on the test. And so you're like, well, this isn't going to be on the test. But, you know, the students who lean in are more like, well, I don't understand. Like, what are you trying to tell us? And and as a professor, I, you know, I'll teach anyone because they're in my class, but I much more appreciate the latter kind of student and find that they are much happier and they do better in school. And this is the and similar to you. I thought of it as a stepping stool, stepping stone as well mm-hmm. to, into the profession. I remember even when I started, I was just like, I don't understand why I need a degree. <laughs> it's such an arrogant thing to think. But <laughs> and at the time, we didn't need one. We actually could have been a therapist without a degree. That's, that's true. Um, uh, that changed soon, like just a few years later. Yeah. Uh, you need a license out of practice in Washington, but that wasn't the case in, in the 90s. It was not. Uh, and I soon realized that, oh, you know, there's, there's, this is interesting. There's a lot of real interesting things happening just in me personally, you know, the growing that you do in graduate school and obviously meeting people and and whatnot. So, so yeah, enjoy it. Uh, Some other tips I have is for money is to plan it out. Uh, I started keeping track of my finances on an Excel spreadsheet, 25 years ago ish was in graduate school 26 years 26 years ago i still have the exact same spreadsheet and i've been keeping track ever since because when you have a nine to five job you have a budget you know you get x amount of dollars per month so it's predictable when you're in graduate school it's it often can be extremely unpredictable and you have tuition now and you don't really know how much you're going to earn after graduation there's just a lot of things you have to keep track of and it's it's kind of a frequent budgeting concern that you have to do. The other thing is, is, you know, regarding loans is loans are fine, but you want to, you want to think about how you want to do it because there are two main styles of loan or debt or money. You, you go to a program, uh, you go through a program and you really want to learn and you, you don't want to be distracted and you want to go as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. This means you, it's going to be hard to work, but you're going to go into a lot of debt. Mm Mm-hmm. But you get through faster, mm-hmm. and you get to start working faster mm-hmm. in the profession that you want to do. Another model is you go slower, and, and this kind of might only apply to programs like Antioch where you can go at your own speed. Right. But the uh, that's just another thing to think about is if you go slower, one, you can kind of enjoy yourself a little bit more because you're not as stressed out about school, and you can work sometimes full-time. I mean, yeah. I have students who work full-time, and yeah. they have three kids. and. Right. And they take, you know, one or two classes a quarter and they graduate without any debt, you know. So uh, there are pros and cons to either. I chose the former. I I barely worked on my graduate degree and got into a lot of debt Mm -hmm. and regretted it kind of, but just, you know, worked really hard for a few years and got out of debt. And I, if I went back in time, I don't know if I would have done it that way. But then again, I hated all the jobs available to me. <laughs> so it was probably better just to kind of get through graduate school as, as fast as possible. Yeah. yeah. Now, my doctorate, 
I, I raced through the doctorate as well and worked full time. You worked full time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, more, actually, more than full time, didn't you? Oh, yeah, a lot more than full time. I was a full time professor and I had a part time practice and I was a podcaster and I was in a band and I was. And, and I was racing student. through my doctorate, which was complicated. You know, doctorates are hard, you know. I think I saw you like four times over that. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, so that's my next piece of advice is say no to things. So even though it sucks that I couldn't see Bob very often, I, I, I couldn't see anyone. And, no. you know, and that was my choice, you yeah. know. And, and if I said yes, then a lot of things would have suffered. So regarding stress... Uh, befriend your professors and your fellow students yeah. um, because there's always going to be stress but if you feel camaraderie you can talk about things and you feel like safe with your professors then like when I think about my graduate school experiences and I think about the most stressful classes I was in it was because I felt very distant from the professor not because it was necessarily a hard topic because with the professors I felt close to and safe with, I i don't know, I just felt like if something went wrong, we could work it out. Yeah. Uh, regarding homework, I have the following uh, piece of advice. One is skim your readings. Don't sit there. It's not a novel. You don't need to keep track of every single word. Uh, often academic writing is based on concept, concepts, and you can skim and go back and highlight and books are something to be referenced, not something to be memorized. And so you can save a lot of time by skimming is the point. And, and there's a, like with me, when I, I read so slow anyway, is I definitely have to skim because I couldn't get through graduate school otherwise. And I would just sort of highlight like, Oh, this section is about this concept. What's this concept mean? And I kind of get a little bit of a gist of it and then I move on. And then if I need to, I go back, you know, and oftentimes I didn't have to go back. <laughs> Uh, the other thing is practice your writing skills. Uh, I, you know, I'm guessing in yeah. Shakespearean li literature degree, there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of papers that you're writing, and 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 getting good at writing means that you spend a lot less time writing and a lot more time learning and thinking. Yeah, and uh, it's just a, it's something that you don't think about because like, oh, I'm going to become a professor, or oh, I'm going to become a performing performing Shakespearean person on stage. Why do I need to learn how to write and citations and blah blah blah? Like it's 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 a it's a very helpful skill and it doesn't take that much to learn it and to um, practice it. You only need to be good enough at it. Yeah. And what I find is a lot of students they think, well, you know, I managed to graduate from high school and I got my bachelor's degree and I took some writing courses and I've I've written papers before. I should be fine. And it's like, no, not necessarily. You're probably not fine, honestly. <laughs> like. Writing at the master's graduate level can be rough, and your professors often hold you to a high standard, you know. Anyway, um, the other thing, advice I give is to do your homework early. Mm -hmm. uh, I teach a lot of students, and there are three types of students. There are the students who do it early, the students who do it kind of like medium, and then the students who wait till the last minute. And, of course, the people who wait till the last minute are always stressed out. Their papers are – they always are terrible. Or not always, but they're often terrible. Mm -hmm. And they're often, like, pleading with me of just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that my paper it sucks, but I didn't have a lot of time to do it. And I'm thinking, you're in graduate school. You know, get your crap together. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's not like I sprung this on you. You, you literally had the syllabus three months ago. 
plan your stuff out. Now, if something happens, obviously, then okay. But, and then people say like, well, you only gave us, you know, like a week or two to write it. I'm like, again, you knew that going into it. And when I was a student and I saw in the syllabus, oh, he's going to spring this on me and I'm going to have two weeks to write that paper. I'm going to work that into that schedule. And I'll, I'll write in my schedule, like, don't plan anything serious this these two weeks because I need to work on this paper. So plan it out and do it early. You'll you'll have a much better life and your professors won't be annoyed with you. <laughs> um, and then you also ask about in-person classes. Um, you know, I don't know yet. I, it hasn't happened to me yet. So I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm s- slated to teach in person next quarter starting in October. Um, but it's possible that Delta or, you know, what's after Delta, what's after Delta? Epsilon. Lambda is the current one, the current new one that I'm aware of. Oh, really? But I don't, I don't know. Are they going in order? It sounds like they're not. Um, so with the next, uh, variant, uh, it's likely going to be worse. So it's possible that it's possible that we are going to be under lockdown conditions for years because people won't get freaking vaccinated. And we are an idiot species that learns nothing from history. We did the same thing with the so-called Spanish flu a hundred years ago. There were protests back then and anti-science back then. And yay, needless deaths, needless lockdowns, needless people losing their jobs, needless economic problems, needless separation from other human beings, needless anxiety, because people won't follow scientists' directives. We're talking 99% of scientists and physicians are like, do this. And, you know, people on Facebook find one physician that says, oh, the the vaccine's going to kill you. It's like, there's always, you know, there's a bell curve of idiots. (laughs) Well, people can data mine, right? Huh? Right. For whatever stupid reason. On my way over here today, I heard a thing on the news that um, it's going, infection's going up with kids now. I'm thinking about children. Children, like, because adults won't be responsible and get vaccinated, children will suffer and die. Yeah. Just crazy. And they have died. And And, and are dying. Some estimates say that, one, because of vaccine denial... Mm-hmm. science denial and to mask and social distancing denial that's been going on since the beginning that something like in the United States alone, 300,000 people have died because of that, that could have been prevented. 300,000. Did you say? Yeah. I don't oh, Or even really? more. I, I, I don't know. I can't remember the exact estimate, yeah, but yeah. if, and I, we, I said this from the beginning because, of course, the scientists were telling us this. If we all just did our job for like, like a month or two, month. the virus would have been gone. Yeah. It would have petered out. Yeah. If, we ju- if everyone just followed Fauci's advice from day one yeah. when, you know, and other scientists. But so, you know, we kind of work in science denialism and, and political uh, silliness and... Uh, uh, fear mongers spouting ridiculous things. I mean, not just like this vaccine is going to get you. It has a chip in it that Bill Gates is going to watch you. I mean, there's people, there's rational, intelligent people that believe that because yeah. they live in some stupid. Anyway, so because of that, 
And, and again, we just sort of work that into our life. Like, well, yeah, I mean, that's just how the life is. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, we've come to accept some status quo that really sucks. It's like half of our country are flat earthers, essentially. Yeah. How did that happen? Is it half? Uh... Like forty percent. I don't. It's, it's high, right? It's high. Ugh. And so, particularly in some, you know, regions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's mm. uh, it's demoralizing, and you know, it's one thing when you hear about flat earthers or whatever, just doing whatever they're doing. It's another thing when you and I might not be able to podcast in person soon because of them. Yeah. You can't come to my house right. and record in person anymore because of them. Yeah. Or you and I could die because of them. Or someone we love could die because of them. That's happening. Yeah. It's Again, it's one thing to hear about political silliness. It's one thing to vote some idiot into office that you hate for four years. It's another thing when, they're, when they are killing us. Yeah. They're killing themselves and killing us. Yeah. And drastically reducing the quality of our life for years to come, possibly. And that's the thing that people don't understand is that this is not going to stop. This virus is not going to go away until people do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. As evidenced by what's happening right now. Right. It is not going to stop. It's not it's not a thing that just sort of goes away. We, for example, never get rid of the flu. The flu, we all understand, just happens. The coronavirus is here to stay until we do what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Do I don't understand? I don't think people understand that. Like every year, if 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 things don't change, which of course they will not, is every year we're going to have half a million Americans die. Every year, and we're going to be under lockdown conditions for the rest of our lives. Oh right. Oh, that's weird. For the rest of our lives, we'll have to be wearing masks or, you yeah. know, it'll be periodic ups and downs. But yeah, yeah. unless people do what they're supposed to do. It ain't hard. It's not hard. And God, we are the dumbest species that's ever lived. I swear to God. Thank God we don't have aliens contacting us. They'd just be laughing at us. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, you know, maybe, maybe that'd be good. And then, you know, a bigger thing is global climate change. Climate change, yeah. Which is, of course, even worse yeah. of a problem. And again, we're doing nothing. Nothing. Essentially. Uh, next email. So enjoy graduate school. Definitely. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> Patron Trish from Ireland says, Kirk and Bob, your podcast has had a major impact on me and has really influenced me in wanting to train in psychotherapy. Oh, neat. Am I too old to train as a therapist? I am 51 now and would be around 55 before I would be qualified to call myself a therapist. And I know from listening to you both that qualifying is only the start of really a lifelong journey of learning and furthering one's knowledge, although I'm totally up for that. Do you think it's possible for someone to start practicing at the age of 55 and be able to gain enough experience in 20 or so working years I would have left to make a real positive impact in my clients' life? lives? Bob, what do you think? 
Absolutely. And one of the things you got going for you is you're going to be 55. You're 51 now and you're going to be 55. So you have that many years of just life experience and um, understanding and development, just, you know, the wisdom of um, a 50-year-old as opposed to the wisdom of, uh, I was 29, 30, 30 when I got done school. And um, um, so, so yeah, so the short answer is absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I've trained therapists in their 60s and they started their careers, you know, yeah. 65 or 68. Second and, career kind of. Yeah, and really uh, enjoyed themselves. The other thing is, is being old as a therapist is kind of easy because you just sit all day. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, you said that the other day. Yeah, that you can be a therapist and, you know, well into your post so-called retirement years uh, and still really enjoy it. And I know a lot of people that do. In fact, I don't know many therapists that retire at 62. Um, I don't know many people that really retire at 62. Well, yeah, but, right, right. but I know a lot of therapists that practice yeah, as in, until, I don't know. I'm just trying to think like why someone, why you would stop really. Cause it, it, you know, it's nice. It's nice to, you know, help people. And, and it's, Especially, anyway, point is, is that you have a lot of years left. You're 55. I mean, you'll be 55. I mean, Bob, you're 54, Four. right? Yeah. Do you think like, well, it's time to time to just put me out the pasture? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I've got a couple things to do left. Right. So 55 is, is, isn't is like too old. No, not at all. The other thing is, is you mentioned like it takes a long time to get enough experience. Uh So both are true, is that one, as you gain experience over 20, 30 years, you will become a better therapist and you will be more comfortable and you will be more diverse in your approaches. Yeah. Uh, And novice therapists are excellent and help people every day. Yeah. There are people that I train in internship who are tremendously helpful to their clients. And... They have imposter syndrome and they barely know what they're doing, but you have a foundation, you know, it's sort of like, what would it be like? I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but you are a, a driver, like an Uber driver or something. And you're, you've never been in this town. So you, you don't, and there's no, there's no Google ways or anything. So they're like, oh, I need to go to such and such address. You know, you'll get them there. It'll take them a little longer take you a little longer but honestly you're so happy to be there you're chipper and you're you're doing a lot of small talk with your uber passengers and your passenger ah yeah it took a little you know she took a little bit longer to get me to my dip, but she was so nice and she was so eager uh i got there it was fine mm-hmm. whereas a seasoned person it's like yeah you know i, I kind of know the deal i don't need to do a lot of small talk mm-hmm. and you're zipping right across town and boom mm-hmm. so you know there's pros and cons to that Right. Mm-hmm. On one hand, and, and I find that novice therapists often have that eagerness that is appreciated by their mm-hmm. clients. Uh, not that seasoned therapists don't have that eagerness, but um, but anyway, point is, is that uh, you right out the gate, you'll probably be helping people. Anyway, uh, next question. Anonymous patron says, how can I how can how can my boyfriend heal from insomnia and how can I help him? Bob, you have insomnia, right? Yeah. How could 
Colleen help you with your insomnia? I don't think she can. Yeah. And I don't consider it something that needs to be healed from. Yeah. Like I accept that I have insomnia from time to time and I don't sleep and I don't seem to be bothered by it really much at all. It doesn't, I know that my experience is different from other folks, but, um, what I've noticed is that it's not the lack of sleep that seems to bug us. It's what we tell ourselves about not sleeping that seems to bug us. But the actual experience of not sleeping, I haven't noticed it to be particularly troublesome. Yeah, I heard a interview with Sean Penn on Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend podcast. Mm-hmm. And I get, apparently Sean Penn only sleeps a few hours a night, and he talked about that. I think he, he says it takes a while to fall asleep, and then when he does fall asleep, he wakes up, and then he can't fall back asleep. And he just deals with it. He's just like, yeah, I just get up and just do other things. So, and that's very true, is that the uh, for some people with insomnia, whether temporary or ongoing, the the frustration and the meaning that they pull from it can be at least half of the suffering. Yeah. Um, so there's that, but, uh, right. So your boyfriend has insomnia. There's not, there's not a lot you can do unless you're a part of his treatment protocol and the treatment protocol involves you doing something like making sure that you're quiet when he's trying to sleep or whatever it is. But here are some things that people need to do when they have insomnia. One is, is to address sleep hygiene, which is obvious. Uh, there are tips online, you can obviously go to professional. There's also the book, Why We Sleep by Walker, which is really good. Avoiding alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, going to bed at the same time, screen time, all this kind of stress. You know, there's a lot of different things that one can do to help with insomnia. And I'm sure you've tried all those things, right, Bob? Yeah. 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 And, did, and it didn't really work. I still have insomnia. Right. But I don't really care. Right. And that's the thing to also note is that Sleep problems, particularly as we get older, are ubiquitous to some extent. And mm. just adjusting to that and just accepting that. It's it's like um, none of us have the bodies that we had when we were 18. And, and that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> and part of that is is sleep is just it's just not going to be as restful. It's not going to not for all of us, but for many of us. Um. I'm not saying you don't do what you can, but sometimes, you know, you just have to deal with it. Accept it. And the notion, the notion that I want to say is that there's this notion out in society, maybe among clinicians, that if you address your sleep hygiene effectively, you will get a good night's sleep. Right. Which isn't necessarily true. No. Like you can do everything and still, ha- still just have trouble sleeping. And there's a bit of victim blaming. Oh, you must not be doing something right. Right. You must be ruminating on right, something. Right. You know, you're not doing mindfulness meditation every day or you're not exercising enough or something like that. And, you know, do what you can, but also don't expect it to work necessarily. It could. And also don't blame yourself like society might yeah. if, it, if it doesn't work out. Right. It's, it's the same with like, well, anyway. Number two is finding a specialist MD that... Uh, understands how the body can affect sleep and that kind of medication can interfere with sleep, um, other kinds of physical conditions, you know. And then the other thing you can do is a sleep study. 
where you go into the lab and you sleep and they hook you up to things and they try to figure out what's going on. You get apnea. Yeah. You could have restless leg syndrome. Oh, I have that. Oh, you do? Sometimes, yeah. Is that part of your insomnia? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, you ever had it? It's fascinating. Uh, you know, maybe kind of, but what's oh. it like? Well, there's a buildup of intensity and like impulse to move to shake it off mm. and what i do is i just don't move and i i lift, i wait for the thing to build and what it does is it'll it's like a wave it'll come and then it'll crash and then it'll go away it's like an itch uh no because it's not like i need to scratch it's but, more, but an urge like an, an urge itch. it's like that yeah and my legs just want to move. And it used to happen just when I would go to sleep. But these days it happens. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I I'm awake for some length of time and then it'll come on again. I just am used to it now and I just sort of ride it out. And mm. it doesn't last longer than a half an hour. Right. So it's not that big a deal. Right. Well, so for, for you, me. you have a way of emotionally coping with it that other people could benefit from of just like yeah it's it's not great i don't like it but you know yeah what am i going to do right. because to fight it is to make it potentially worse or yeah. may at least make your life worse so yeah sleep study and then the fourth thing is to find a specialist therapist that works with sleep that understands that uh you can't just go to any old therapist and expect them to understand oh. yeah um and they might help you with relaxation with thought control Stress reduction, emotional regulation, this kind of thing. Thought control is a big part of it because I find a good chunk of people that have sleep problems have a really hard time controlling their thoughts. Because when you are uh, trying to sleep and you're rolling through all the stresses of your life, mm. you, you can't fall asleep. Your brain mm -hmm. needs you to relax. Mm -hmm. Your brain needs to be relaxed. Mm -hmm. And uh, to have skills uh mindfulness skills or just thought control cognitive skills on how to control what you're thinking about is very important like for me for whatever reason and you know i hear some people they you know they they lay down to go to sleep and their their mind just kind of becomes blank and then they just fall asleep mm -hmm. uh, for some reason i can't do that mm. i need to have a prompt to think about something mm. and i've talked about this before where I'll think about having like a superpower. Oh, fine. You know, like um, I can stop time. That's usually what I go to. It's like I can I can stop time. What do I do? So stop time. What does it mean? Does it mean like everybody freezes except you? Yeah. Oh, neat. And I think I would take all the weapons of the world and throw them in the ocean or something. Wow. <laughs> but I think, well, that would take like literally millions of years for me to walk the earth and find. So I need some other kind yeah. of like power you know so i kind of oh how fun so i kind of go through that kind yeah. of thing and um and because i'm thinking about something that's frivolous and isn't really connected to my life if i'm if i'm ready for sleep pretty quickly i'll fall asleep i don't i don't need to think much yeah. uh beyond just the initial phases that i usually get to right and so that's a technique that i use because if i don't think about that mm -hmm. I probably will one either start thinking about things that are stressing me out, or two, I'll think about the fact that I'm falling asleep, and and it I'm I'm an anxious person, and so if I think about the fact that am I am I falling asleep right now, it <laughs> makes me scared. Oh, because I'm losing control. You know? Oh, what I mean? yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Like you know, 
I don't know if you can relate to this, Bob, but falling yeah. asleep is kind of terrifying because you're, you're losing consciousness. Uh-huh. You might not wake up. You know what I mean? Like, or you're not aware of what things are happening to you when you're unconscious. Someone could come in and I don't think, I don't worry about someone coming in and killing me, but. But right. You, you, right. You give up all notion of impacting your environment and you are an object to be impacted, acted upon. Right. Yeah. You're giving up kind of like your soul in a sense, because your, wow. your, your brain isn't working. You're no longer conscious. You're basically, you're kind of like dead in a sense, you know? <laughs> Damn, I need sleep in the night. That's for sure. <laughs> so I can't, and, and every night this happens, like I, I have to distract myself from the fact that I'm about to fall asleep. And so I'll think about these other things and I fall asleep. That's anyway. pretty cool stuff to think about though. Um, and probably making it fantastic is probably better than sort of mundane. I'm going to go to Costco and get. Oh, no. Yeah, that that would make it worse. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of people that do this specifically around superpowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, independently, people will come up with this mm-hmm. technique. Or you think about some other, you know, obviously counting sheep is another one that you hear about when you're a kid, which never worked for, for me because I'm like, I'm just counting now. It's just an active. But another thing that I will do is I will fantasize about you know i'd have like a million dollars and say what do i spend my cash on you know what do you got uh what give us your top two well i i haven't had that fantasy in a long time but i remember when i did i'd be like okay first i'd pay off this amount of debt and so i'd sort of subtract that from that i would god what what did i say i would do i would i would throw a party or some i'd 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 have some kind of extravagant party with everyone invited or something sounds fun i would give money back to my parents because they put me through my bachelor's degree or so you know that that kind of thing i would i don't know man like i i talked about i think i talked about this recently on the podcast i i just don't need anything (laughs) and that's part of my privilege of having i guess a good enough job for the past 20 years right um but you know, things like boats or fancy cars or... I, I don't know, you you're don't like this that. too. Like, you're not... I don't want that stuff. Yeah, it's it, there's... You know, because some people it's like, oh, it'd be so awesome to have like a boat and or it'd be so awesome to have like... Well, what do people buy these days? <laughs> I don't even know. Or super expensive shoes or... So, I, don't, I don't... What do people spend their money on? I, I just... I, don't ask me. I don't... Yeah. I'm actually going clothes shopping today. I haven't gone clothes shopping in I don't even know how many years. Where are you going to go? I don't even know. Where do you go clothes shopping? <laughs> because the malls don't exist anymore. You know, like well, like Northgate I, Mall doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I'm not going there. I guess you can go Alderwood, or you go to that. You go to that outlet. The um the outlets up in uh, uh oh up to Laylip. like Marysville. Yeah, I don't think I want to go that far. Alderwood just, Alderwood still exists. As, okay. a, as a mall but again this is a lot of forever 21 and stuff like it's it's mm. not it's not middle-aged man man oh, clothes oh i'm not doing it more than, for more than an hour well i'll tell you what i do now yeah uh, i shop online clothes but how do you know if it's gonna fit um i've had good luck there's a oh. way of guessing right all right especially if you don't care if it fits extremely well well i don't yeah so if you just kind of generally know your size and, okay. and a lot of online uh, it'll arrive really quick and you can send it back and they'll give you your money back oh, okay. and and they don't, and there's no sh- shipping charge because they want people to buy online. You know what I mean? Oh, so, right. So mm. I've actually had a lot of good luck. In fact, 
this everything I'm wearing right now I bought online. My socks, my underwear, my shorts, my shirt. These I'm checking out Kirk's shorts. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. army army green short shorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because I was just thinking about this this morning that when you go to the mall, because before I started buying clothes online, for the reasons you're talking about, it's like how do you know if it fits or how do you know what the material feels like or you know you want to you need to see it and try it on and. I would go to the mall, and like I was saying earlier, most of the stuff, it just doesn't fit me, or they don't have the size or the color that I want or something. Online, they have everything, because they have all the inventory, right? right that's true. Right. So, it's all, right. so it, it, it's a, but it's a skill that I think that you, you have to trial and error a little it. bit, yeah. Yeah. And once, because I've bought a lot, I've bought a, a fair amount of clothes, and, and put it on, and instantly, like I bought this... Um, like Facebook knows. So I buy a lot of clothes through Facebook ads because I'll be browsing <laughs> Facebook. Wow. And that works because Facebook now knows that I click on those ads and even buy things, you know, like, like, cause it's all in the database. Right? I didn't know that the actual advertising on things like Facebook worked. What do you mean worked? Like actually gets people to buy stuff. Well, it didn't normally until well. So there's there's a few other things. This oh, is God, this is diverting. boring. We're at the end of the episode, so yeah. I'm just going to talk about something that is completely irrelevant to psychology, and that is that during the pandemic, I found that I had an itch to just buy things because it I was so bored. Uh-huh. You know, remember in the thick of the pandemic, it was just like every day was the same, mm-hmm. and. Stuck at home, and me and Stacy weren't going to restaurants. We weren't meeting up with friends, mm-hmm. and I got real tired of the Zoom hangout thing. It just wasn't the oh, same. Oh yeah, that got tedious. And yeah. so, I found myself just wanting, like you know, this shirt. Like I, this shirt is Star Frontiers. It's like a D and D game from the eighties that I used to play. Right on. And I would just find myself buying clothes just out of like trying to break the boredom. And I also was, I, I had time to shop. Whereas before the pandemic, I'd always think like, oh, I should probably buy some new clothes, but I just never bothered. And I would wear the same thing almost every day. Yeah. That sounds like me now. Yeah. Um, To the point where I remember one student even made fun of the fact that I wore the same pair of jeans every day. (laughs) It was this, it was gray Levi's that I would wear. I'll tell you that someone would even notice that is beyond me. Right. I don't think I'd notice. Yeah. What you... Yeah, she and she was kind of mean about it too, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, am I supposed to wear different jeans?" And and so, um, <laughs> yeah, I would I would just sort of lock in on an on a uniform, and I would just wear it yeah, all yeah. the time. Yeah, but in the pandemic, I'm like, well, one, I want some variety, but two, I kind of have time now to just, what else am I going to do with my day? You know? know, and so I started buying online, and I got kind of good at it. The other factor was that I was doing a lot more videos. And so I needed more shirts because in the beginning, in fact, in the beginning I thought, so this is, this is how I think is, so I have this black long sleeve sweater, mm-hmm. or I have a couple of them actually, but they're the same. And once I find something I like, I'm like, I'll buy five of them. Cause I'm like, I hate it when a store doesn't sell something oh, that, sure. you, you know, you like, Oh, that's a really great yeah. shirt. And then you yeah. try to buy it again and it's gone anyway. So 
during the beginning of my reaction videos days, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago ish, I was wearing this black sweater every time. And I thought, because it kind of contrasted well with my background sure. and it was easy to wear. It was sort of nondescript. Yep. It, it just didn't really say much. It was just a black long sleeve thing. And I, and I decided in my head that I was just going to wear that every single time because I didn't want to have to think about it. And I didn't want the, and you think, anyway. Yeah. So people start commenting, and the pod wife, Stacy, is reading the comments, and she starts telling me, like, you, you got to vary your outfit a little bit more. <laughs> like, you can't just wear that, that sweater every single time. And I'm like, well, that was my plan. Like, I was going to wear the same thing uh-huh. every time because... Hey, Captain Kirk wore the same thing every episode. That's right. So if he can do it, I mean... Yeah. Are you... You think, I, you think you're better than Captain Kirk? No. I don't. I don't. Right. Well, so, actually probably are captain picard is my guy uh yeah picard is awesome of course uh kirk though you know he he can be he can be pretty pretty awesome as well but in terms of like someone to look up to yeah i think picard yeah for sure um cisco i liked but then he got kind of weird towards the end of the seasons that's deep space nine yeah i didn't watch that and then Janeway. Oh, I she's her. she's pretty great. Yeah. Uh interesting, smart. Yeah. Had a personality. Yeah, yeah. Um what other captains? The guy from Enterprise. The guy from Enterprise, the 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 prequel. Yeah. Uh I barely remember that season. It's on now on H&I. I barely remember that. 11 or something. And then you have like the new the new Star Trek Discovery, I think. Discovery, right? Yeah. And there's a there's a couple captains on that one. Isn't Michelle Yeoh one of them? Uh, you know, I I don't know. Okay. Um. So, what was I saying? Oh, you got to so, vary so, your outfit, right? So then I go to my closet and I like pull out like the one or two other shirts that are uh, available, and I'm like, well, if I rotate these two shirts it's gonna look really weird right so then i just started buying more clothes and oh, again sure. this is pandemic time so it's all online and i figured out how to buy stuff online yeah but anyway getting back to my failure story i'm flipping through facebook and, and i'm always th- it's always advertising things to me like and i'm always like oh yeah it knows what shirts i want to buy and i saw this uh, shirt that was a full picture of paul's boutique which is a Beastie Boys album and it's you know one of my favorite it's an early it's one of the least f- sort of known Beastie it doesn't even have a hit on that on that album from like I don't know 89 or something and uh, the whole shirt is just the album cover and I just thought it was kind of cool it's not just a, a logo in the yeah. middle of the shirt it's like the whole shirt front to back I buy it and I'm like oh it's gonna be an awesome you know button up shirt and I get it in the mail and it's like I don't know what kind of material it's like rayon or, uh, you know, that kind of really uh, synthetic uh, uh, feeling. Uh-huh. And I instantly was like, oh, failure. But how are you supposed to know? I you can't, can't know when you click yeah. on the thing. But right. anyway. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle, in which, hey, I, in which I yell about everyone well, about the vaccine. Get your, you could get your partner to listen to this episode. It'll probably put him to sleep. <laughs> And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.